Uh, go ahead and grab your Bibles, 2 Samuel 15, uh, 2 Samuel 16, rather, forgive me, 2 Samuel 16. Uh, let me just say while you turn there, uh, thankful for, for Jake, I had an opportunity to uh, speak down at the BCM uh, a few months ago, I think it's back in February, sometime earlier this year, and uh, some really solid young people. Uh, they are young adults, I guess, now, so uh, it was really a blessing to meet with them. And uh, thankful for the work that our BCM is doing. Uh, we have a BCM here at Kentucky State University that is revamping and really excited to see what the Lord is doing there. 2 Samuel 16, page 288 of your Bibles. And with that, if you will, stand with me out of reverence for God's holy word. Hope, hope you had a snack before coming. You're not getting out early. Verse 1. When David had passed a little beyond the summit, Ziba, the servant of Mephibosheth, met him with a couple of donkeys saddled, bearing 200 loaves of bread, 100 bunches of raisins, 100 of summer fruits, and a skin of wine. The king said to Ziba, Why have you brought these? Ziba answered, The donkeys are for the king's household to ride on, the bread and the summer fruit for the young men to eat, and the wine for those who faint in the wilderness to drink. The king said, And where is your master's son? Ziba said to the king, Behold, he remains in Jerusalem, for he said, Today the house of Israel will, will give me back the kingdom of my father. And king said to Ziba, Behold, all that belonged to Mephibosheth is now yours. And Ziba said, I pay homage. Let me ever find favor in your sight, my lord, the king. When King David came to uh, Bahiram, there came out a man of the family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shimei, the son of Gera. And as he came, he cursed continually. <clears throat> and he threw stones at David and, and at all the servants of, of King David and all the people and all the mighty men on his right hand and on his left. And Shimei said as he cursed, get out, get out, you man of blood, you worthless man. The Lord has avenged you of all the blood of the house of Saul in whose place you have reigned. And the Lord has given the kingdom to the hand of your son Absalom. See, your evil is on you for you are a man of blood. And Abishai, son of Zeriai, said to the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over and take off his head. But the king said, What have I to do with you, you sons of Zeruiah? If he is cursing because the Lord has said to him, Curse David, who then shall say, Why have you done so? And David said to Abishai and to all of his servants, Behold, my own son seeks my life. How much more now may this Benjaminite leave him alone? Let him curse, for the Lord has told him to. It may be that the Lord will look on the wrong done to me, that the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing today. So David and his men went on the road while Shimei went along on the hillside opposite him and cursed as he went and threw stones at him and flung dust. And the king and all the people who were with him arrived weary at the Jordan, and there he refreshed himself. Now Absalom and all the people, the men of Israel, came to Jerusalem in Ahithophel with him. And when Hushai the archite, David's friend, came to Absalom, Hushai said to Absalom, Long live the king, long live the king. And Absalom said to Hushai, Is this your loyalty to your friend? Why did you not go with your friend? And Hushai said to Absalom, No, for whom the Lord and his people and all the men of Israel have chosen, his I will be, and with him I will remain. And again, whom shall I serve? Should it not be his son? As I have served your father, so I will serve you. Then Absalom said to Ahithophel, Give your counsel, what shall we do? Ahithophel said to Absalom, 
Go into your father's concubines, whom he has left to keep the house, and all Israel will hear that you have made yourself a stench to your father, and the hands of all who are with you will be strengthened. So they pitched a tent for Absalom on the roof, and Absalom went into his father's concubines in sight of all Israel. Now in those days the council of Ahithophel gave was as if one consulted the word of God, so was all the counsel of Ahithophel esteemed both by David and by Absalom. Let's go to Lord in prayer. Our Father, we are looking at a, a difficult text to understand, to apply to, to, to everything. And Lord, we ask that you would, as always, open our entire being, that we may receive your word, be transformed by it, believing that your spirit will give it to us and that we will be more like Jesus. Would you be so kind? And may I decrease so that you can increase. In the name of your son, we pray. Amen. You're seated. Well, Israel is officially at war, and they've been at war really since chapter 15. And what we see in chapter 16 is picking up on that narrative. Absalom is marching to Jerusalem with an army. And instead of standing to fight for his kingdom, David flees, and he is literally in exile in the wilderness. Now, in chapter 15, just to remind you, last week we saw that as David flees, he makes his first of several encounters. And in chapter 15, these are largely positive encounters. For example, there is one gentleman who, even though he's only been on the job for one day, decides that he will be loyal to David and only loyal to David, and so agrees to go into exile with the now former king. So too, he, he, is, he has been able, through the connections and loyalty of some of his servants, he has set up a spy ring inside Absalom's administration. We actually see some of that with Hushai there in chapter 16. He also has connections among the high priest, and they will keep a line of communication between what is going on in Jerusalem with his son and, and, and everything else. So, so in chapter 15, it, there's some positive coming out of it, right? Yes, David might be in exile, but, but there's, there's some, some reason to think that, that this war will soon turn. When you come to chapter 16, David is still going through a series of encounters, but these are more negative encounters. One after another, here, David, in the middle of dark times, people heap scorn and betrayal upon him, adding insult to the proverbial injury. Let's start here in verses 1 through 4. We meet the opportunist. The opportunist, in the end, adds David's sense of abandonment. Here in verse 1, we meet that David meets a man by the name of Ziba, who is the servant of Mephibosheth. Now, those names may not jump off the page to you, but we've met these two guys before. You go back a few chapters. You may recall that when David set up his kingdom, he went out of his way to seek out anyone from the household of Saul. Saul, of course, being the previous king who was uh, ousted by David, essentially. That's an oversimplification, but we'll, we'll run with it. Now, usually when the incoming king is seeking to find out, is there anyone left related to the previous king and has a legitimate legal right to the throne, usually that means the current king wants to kill all of them, right? You just want to wipe them off because you don't want any sense of illegitimacy attached to your reign. Well, word got around that one of Saul's sons, the only surviving son of the former king, was still alive. His name was Mephibosheth. Now, Mephibosheth, we are told, was handicapped and was limited in his ability to provide for himself, 
Instead of seeking Mephibosheth out to execute him, as most ancient Near Eastern kings would have done, David seeks him out to show him great kindness. He brings Mephibosheth into his home. He says, you have complete access to the palace. Come share a meal with me anytime you want. In fact, he says, due to the limitations as a result of your handicap, he, 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 he restores to Mephibosheth all the land of his father, the, the late king. And with his servants, Mephibosheth has some wealth and provisions given to him. His chief servant was this Ziba. And so when David is marching away from Zion, as he is entering into the wilderness, into exile, east of Jerusalem, he meets Ziba, and immediately he knows something is up. He should not see Ziba without Mephibosheth being with him. So David wants to know, what in the world is going on here? And what Ziba does is he brings with him uh, supplies, if you will. At least they'll be perceived as supplies. It's presented there as donkeys, bread, raisins, fruits, and wine. And these were for David, his men, their families, and everyone else traveling. Now, David probably assumes this is produce from Mephibosheth's field, and it is. It is Mephibosheth returning the favor. David showed him kindness. Here's Mephibosheth showing David kindness. But Ziba, in verse 3, suggests otherwise. Ziba tells us that no, Mephibosheth has betrayed you. Mephibosheth is celebrating that Absalom has taken the throne because he believes Absalom will return uh, Saul's kingdom back to the descendants of, of Saul. Now, imagine being David. David has no reason to believe that this is wrong. After all, again, put yourself in his shoes. If you have been exiled by your own son, who is, who is grown in popularity, no doubt you probably assume that what Zippa is telling you is true. After all, Mephibosheth has everything to gain with David being ousted than he does with David staying. If Mephibosheth wants power, and every prince does, then it makes complete sense why Mephibosheth would do this. Now, we will find the full story later on in 2 Samuel, but for now, David believes everything Ziba is telling him. Ziba, you see, is an opportunist. He is heaping upon David, taking advantage of his emotional state of rejection, saying, you have been abandoned even by those you loved and treated well. But Ziba, we find, is the real opportunist here. He is essentially bribing David and taking advantage of his weakness and this weak state that he is in for his own good. By bringing all of this produce, by bringing all of these supplies, he manages to get David to, to take away from Mephibosheth his land and instead give it to Ziba. No wonder then there at the end of this passage there, verse 4, Ziba said, I pay homage. Let me ever find favor in your sight, my lord, the king. And the irony is, Ziba says he is loyal, the thing that he said Mephibosheth is not. But in fact, he would do the same thing to any king if he can get what he thinks he deserves. He is an opportunist. And opportunists are self-interested. Ziba couldn't care less about Mephibosheth and his needs, nor could he care about David. He only cares about himself. 
It is sad when people see misery and suffering as an opportunity not to serve, as Jake shared earlier, but rather for personal gain. Every time there is a natural disaster, for example, in Kentucky, the attorney general has to announce, beware of scammers. Beware of people who will make victims of those who are already been victimized. This has been true recently with the flooding in eastern Kentucky. It was true uh, earlier with the tornadoes in West Kentucky. It is incredible the evil that such opportunists will practice. Well, we meet not only an opportunist, but we also meet an opponent here in verses 5 to 14. If, if Ziba brings a sense of abandonment to David, um, here this man brings to David a sense of rejection. They continue to go into exile. They continue to leave the promised land. And suddenly this guy gets off his keyboard and he starts to shout across the street at David. And here he heaps scorn and abuse upon him. Shimei, we find in verse 5, curses at David and his men continually. Here is a man who loves schadenfreude. That's a word you didn't know you were going to hear this morning, right? Right? You, you, you didn't know you were going to get some German. But there it is, right there. That, I went to school for that. Google did to spell it right and everything. But he revels in David's misery, believing he is getting what he deserves. In fact, notice verses 6 to 7. He even throws stones at David and his servants, so much so that his bodyguards have to surround him. This is the king. This is the king. And this guy isn't just heaping insults at him, but he is throwing stones at him. So naturally, we can agree this man should not be canceled on Twitter. We can all agree on that, right? But verse 7, notice that he is cursing David again, and he calls him a man of blood who is worthless. Worthless. Again, put yourself in David's shoes. You've been ousted by your own son from a throne you believe that Yahweh himself has gifted you as the anointed one of Israel, thrown out of the city. Everyone wants you gone. And along the way, in your lowest point in life, this was lower than anything he experienced in, in the time of Saul when he was on the run. Here comes this one person to say, those whom you showed kindness to have abandoned you. And here comes another man who, who, who says, uh, who, who rejects him, his leadership, and everything about him and continues to heap insults. Now, if you're David, what would you do? We're given two good options. I know which one I would probably pick. It's not the right option. It's probably the one I would pick though, right? The first option, we need to skip down to verse nine, and that is violence. Notice there, then Abishai, son of Zeruiah, said to the king, why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let's go take off his head. Now that's probably the option most of us would pick in the ancient Near Eastern world, right? Now think about it. When was the last time we saw a story where the words uh, dead dog and curse were found in the same narrative? Oh, and it had to do with David. Remember the story? It was on a man who was a giant who was cursing Israel. And he looked at David and says, am I a dog that you would throw a stick at? And what did David do to that man? Chopped his head off. I think the writer wants us to pick up here. 
Won't the giant slayer handle little Saul's buddy? Can't he handle this? His, his servants certainly think so. In fact, he says, Look, I know you can handle this dude, but let me handle it for you. You watch. I'll take care of this. And you will never have to hear these insults again. But what does David choose? He chooses patience. Patience. The humble man is willing to listen even to his critics in order to discern if there is any truth to discover. That is humble patience. Think about it. Most of us here can't handle a negative comment on a Facebook post, let alone a guy screaming across the street, it would be better if you were dead. David chooses patience. Why? Because David understands even in the mockery and and the hate of his worst critics, perhaps God is speaking. Now, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. We have a problem where people can heap praise, a thousand people can heap praise upon us. One person can have one small word of negativity, and that's the only thing we heard that day. Because we personalize everything as Americans. We, we overhype critics, and we underhype the praise of people that we're supposed to love and who love us. It's amazing, isn't it? Is, is we, we, we hesitate to listen to those that, that we should listen to, and we listen only to people that we would never go to for advice. Isn't that strange? Why do we do that? In a few minutes, I'll be right over here, and, and there will be nice comments made because you feel obligated to. But, but then there will be that one or two critic, right? And I'll go home believing that one person. I'm not saying do that. What I am saying is like a good joke, right? A good joke is one to where there has to be an element of truth to it in order for it to be funny, right? So when we make Jokes about Louisville, jokes about Kentucky, jokes about the left, jokes about the right, jokes about deacons, jokes about in-laws, whatever it might be. They're only funny because of stereotypes or some element of truth. So it is with criticism. Could it be there is an element of truth to what this critic has to say to David? For example, he calls David a man of blood. Is that true? God said it was. Remember when David was hanging out in his freshly built palace? He still had that new palace smell, right? And he looks down, he sees a a little tent, and he says, that's where God is dwelling? That's not good enough for me. Hey, I've got an idea. Let's build a temple, a permanent dwelling space for our creator. And God says, that is a great idea, but you ain't going to do it. You are a man of blood. Think of all the fights David has had. Think of all the battles he's led his men into. Think of all the wars. And let's not forget one of his men by the name of Uriah, he had executed so he can chase his wife around. There's some truth to this, isn't it? Now, what's not true is that David isn't worthless. David is full of worth. After all, he is the anointed one of God. 
So instead of saying, you know what, uh, everything he's saying is true, uh, 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 you know, because all my critics are true. Rather, he says, look, the Lord will deal with him. And in fact, we, we've got to move quickly. Verses 10 to 11, David acknowledges that the Lord might be using him. And furthermore, verses 12 to 13, he leaves vengeance with the Lord. He says, yes, 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 I don't like what this person is saying, but my identity isn't in criticism. It's not in the power of my opponents, but rather I understand God is just. He will address this in his own time. And remember what we saw last week. He says, if it's the Lord's will, I return to Jerusalem, then I will return to Jerusalem. In the meantime, I am in exile and I must use this time to grow closer to Christ. And so in verse 14, he finally reaches his destination. He has crossed the Jordan. He and his men are exhausted. Exhausted, not just because they've traveled nonstop, but because they are exhausted physically, they're exhausted emotionally, and certainly spiritually. But notice finally the order. So we've, we've seen the opportunist, we've seen the opponent, here is the order. And when we get to this point, we think David is at rock bottom until we see just a hint of hope. This is broken down in two parts. Let me summarize the first. We, we meet verses 15 to 19. Hushai is there. Remember, Hushai is the key spy for David. He's loyal to David, but he's pretending to be loyal to, to Absalom. By the way, his language is, uh, he'll say, I'm loyal to the king, and Absalom assumes it's, it's him because politicians are the most arrogant people you will meet. Uh, it's like college basketball and football coaches are the same. Um, and so, so Hushai is there. But then we get this order, verses 20 to the end of the chapter. Absalom enters Jerusalem, and he takes the throne, and now he has to figure out what's next, right? That's the challenge of, of, of politics. Most presidents are either really good campaigners or really good administrators. You ever notice this? There are some leaders, presidents in particular, who you get, you, you get them in their office. They are making decisions. We're doing this. I've got vision. Da, da, da. They're just going. They're in their zone. Turn a camera on. They're a deer in the headlights, right? You know? Others, when they're behind the scenes and they're in charge of doing all that sort of stuff, they really struggle. They have to lean into to advisors and counsel and all that sort of stuff. But when you turn the, the cameras on, they are, they are in, in vain, right? Really good campaigners. Some are really good administrators. Absalom has done a good job of the campaigning part. He's got everyone to back him up. He's got everyone to vote for him. There is no question of the election results here. And, and he just marches into Jerusalem. And now, what do I do? Well, you may remember one of his new counselors, a man by the name of Ahithophel. That name will be on your quiz. You have to pronounce it right and spell it right on the quiz at the end of the service. He is the great traitor in the narrative. You have a spy in, in Hushai. You have a traitor here in Ahithophel. Yeah, let's see you do it. You remember for David, everything the man said was wise, but David prays, give him foolish counsel. And the first thing he tells Absalom on the surface looks wise. Because after all, if you're going to oust David because he's not popular, presumably, you don't want to replace him with his son because he's just going to continue his dad's policies. But if he does this act with the concubines, remember David left his 10 concubines behind to maintain the palace. That was a big mistake. We saw it last week. If he does this, he will show publicly his policies, his administration will have nothing to do with his father's. So on the surface, it sounds politically wise. What he ends up doing is he makes a clear break with David personally, politically, publicly. This is the first of other examples of foolish 
words of wisdom Ahithophel will give Absalom. And why does that matter? Because David is at his lowest here. Everyone has abandoned him. Everyone has heaped criticism and anger and taken advantage of him. David is at his lowest, far away from the palace. News hasn't reached him. He doesn't know what is happening. He is seemingly all alone on the other side of of the Jordan. He is in the wilderness to the east, like Adam and Eve leaving the garden. All he has is a little bit of hope. We, the reader, are seeing it here, aren't we? Hushai is still there. The priests are still there. And oh, look, God is answering his prayers. This really stuck out to me this week. We, the reader, are seeing God actively partaking in what is happening here on David's behalf. But David hasn't seen any of that yet. Even at his lowest, David chooses to believe God is at work. Don't miss that. That's why when the opportunists come, he doesn't just give in. When his opponent is cursing him and throwing stones at him, he says, it's okay. It's okay. The Lord will work it out in the end. What does David have? David has fool's hope. I'll confess to you, I have spent most of this weekend watching the new Lord of the Rings show. Love Lord of the Rings. I'm a token fan. And if you don't like it, too bad. You have bad taste in in literature, okay? That's what I think. Love it. Love it, right? May go home this afternoon. Watch it again. Love it. So so good. I mean, they're going to ruin it, of course. But in the meantime, it's so good, guys. It's so good, right? I mean, it's going to get all wokey and stuff, and I don't like that. But, but outside of that, uh, it's, it's, I love, love Tolkien's world. One of the great scenes is in Return of the King. I'm, I'm going to stay this from the movies for the sake of simplicity. But, but Pippin is at Minas Tirith, and he's looking out at Mount Doom, Mordor. And he knows that the next day, everything they've loved will be destroyed by the Dark Lord. And he says... I don't want to go into battle. It's just a hobbit. But waiting on the edge of one I cannot escape is even worse. Is there any hope, Gandalf? And the wise wizard says, there was never much hope. Just a fool's hope. Here's David. East of Israel outside of the Jordan. What hope is there for you, David? There never was much. I was a shepherd boy in Bethlehem. All I've had is but a fool's hope. But when God begins to move, it's more than enough, no matter how dark things get. If you don't believe me, you remember We saw this last week, David's journey past the Jordan. He marched up to the Mount of Olives and there he cried. His descendant, Jesus, followed the same path. There he cried tears on the same mountain on his way to exile. He went outside of the city to be crucified. 
And if you were Peter or James or John or any of the Marys there witnessing the event, what hope did you have? But a fool's hope. Until three days later at sunbreak, he was risen from the dead. Church, it's all we have. Do we worship a Savior who has conquered the grave? What darkness can His light not pierce? And how can we not, above all things, be a people of great hope? We will meet many opportunists. We will meet many opponents. But we will always have the hope of a risen Savior. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I ask you.